1: Welcome to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness Today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Today, we'll attempt to sort out the good information from the bad and set the record straight on your good health. Healthcare and wellness issues can be so confusing these days with information constantly changing. Let us help you learn what you need to know. Now, here is your host, Dr. Neil Nathan.
2: Welcome, welcome to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness Today. I'm your host, Dr. Neil Nathan. Um, I'd like at this time to thank our sponsors, Research Nutritionals, um, and Beyond Balance for making this program possible. Uh, since I personally use these products in my practice on a daily basis, as our program unfolds, I'll be mentioning some of them when it is appropriate. Now, we are live, so if you have questions for us during the program, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. I'd like to remind you that you can download the Voice America mobile app and you can find us on iTunes, Google Playtime, and Kindle all for free. Uh, We now have our own Facebook page, so please go to the Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today and like us and share us, and you can ask me questions on that site as well. If you would like to have a consultation to discuss some of your personal health care needs, this is also available on my website at www.neilnathanmd.com. So without further ado today, I am delighted to welcome back to the program Dr. Joe Brewer. Dr. Brewer has been a guest on our program several times and I'm very, very happy to have him back so we can give you further information on the Basic, important, underappreciated concept of mold toxicity. Uh, Dr. Brewer is an infectious disease specialist in private practice in Kansas City, Missouri. He received his MD degree from the University of Kansas School of Medicine and completed his internal medicine residency at St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City, and then completed his infectious disease fellowship at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. He practices infectious disease at St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City, and is an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Um, He has really um, done a good deal of research in recent years on the concept of mold toxicity, and today we're going to talk about yet another um, recently completed research project, which he's publishing, uh, that will help us understand this even further. So uh, with that, uh, Joe, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Neil. Well, yeah, it's very good to have you here. Um, you know, the subject of mold toxicity is so underappreciated. So many of our patients, when they uh, try to explain to other physicians who are not aware of it, even as a diagnosis, just receive, you know, blank stares and, and um, they look at them like um, they have antenna growing out of their heads. So um, hopefully we will continue to bring forward this subject as, as really important for medical practitioners and patients alike to understand just how common it is and how important to be to be aware of it
3: yes i agree the um, uh, a lot of the medical literature on mold toxicity uh, which dates back the old literature, which is valid, dates back to uh, foodborne mold um, probably more of an issue in in other countries in in grains and so forth and uh, the newer concept of of inhaled mold toxicity and becoming chronically toxic from that is a is a, is a newer concept, not brand new, but it's, you know, been evolving for probably about 25 years or so, but uh, I think it's still largely underappreciated.
2: So, well, let's bring that forward. So, let's, let's start by just reminding our listeners about what kind of symptoms uh, might they have that would tip us to the diagnosis.
3: Well, the most of the patients that we've worked if, with and I think probably would reflect your practice as well have been uh, what I guess I would generally put under the umbrella of chronic illness patients. Uh, these are patients with, with, who have been often diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, possibly chronic Lyme disease in which they didn't uh, have a complete or full recovery with being treated for Lyme disease, chemical sensitivities, and so on. So the typical symptoms are uh, fatigue, uh, headache, uh, achy bones, achy joints, achy muscles, brain fog. Uh, they may have a variety of GI complaints, uh, maybe some respiratory complaints. A number of our patients, which we'll probably get into later today, have some chronic sinus complaints. And so it can be uh, neurological complaints. It can be a pretty large uh uh, list of symptoms at least in in which uh, most of the patients have at least some of those symptoms.
2: Right, and and the variability of those symptoms is what really confuses both patients and healthcare providers alike. I mean, I, I'd like to add to that list very intense um, anxiety or very intense depression, mood swings, um, sweating at different times during the day Um I'd like to point out that if people get numbness and tingling in odd parts of the body, places that aren't thought of as the things that a neurologist would look at and make the diagnosis of a peripheral neuropathy where an odd feeling of, of numbness and tingling uh, in a part of their back or around their belly button or in a just a, a different area of the body, what we would call an atypical paresthesia, those to me... Uh, coupled with the fatigue and the cognitive impairment and the pains and the GI symptoms would be um, a tip off that yes, we need to start looking for mold toxicity as a, an explanation.
3: Yes, I definitely agree with all of those comments.
2: <clears throat> so, given those, that constellation of symptoms, and they are so variable, really is confusing for, it's like you almost begin to think, what in the world? would cause all of this. I mean, it it leads, as you know, many of our patients, if they are seeing a practitioner who is not aware of this diagnosis, is likely to say, well, it's got to be in your head. So um, probably for you as well as for me, many of the people that I see have already seen a number of physicians, and they're and they basically been told um, or implied this is in your head. You need to take an antidepressant. Or an anti-anxiety agent. See a psychiatrist because this is certainly not a physical illness, and that is for me one of the real tragedies.
3: Yes, I agree. I, in fact, I just saw a patient yesterday who had been uh, seen at a very prestigious medical center, and uh, they um, <clears throat> couldn't really come up with anything on rather extensive testing. And they, the, at her um, uh, summary. Appointment of an extensive workup, she was told that she would need to be referred to psychiatry. And that's right. a very common problem that we find.
2: <clears throat> and when that happens, one of the things that adds to the difficulties that our patients face is that family members begin to doubt the veracity of their observations. They begin to go, well, your doctors are telling you this is in your head, so. Why should I be supportive of you? You know, I think you ought to take your meds and get the therapy that they're offering you. And so, um, this type of an illness really requires a lot of, of family and and support from friends in order to get through this um, relatively psychologically intact. And unfortunately, that also the props get kicked out from under these folks in that in that area as well.
3: Yes, I agree. Yeah.
2: yeah. So given given these symptoms, given this, um, let's talk about, okay, what do we do next? Once we entertain the possibility that there's mold toxicity present here, um, how do you proceed next? What, what uh, are the first things you do to either lock in the diagnosis or begin to think about how are we going to treat this?
3: Well, usually uh, the, the next step is to try to confirm if uh, we will take, uh, if, if mold is suspect, and it is in many of these cases, we will you know, take an, a history on exposure. And oftentimes that's quite helpful. Uh, there, uh, sometimes uh, the history will be a, uh, not uh, extremely uh, positive for mold exposure, but I would say uh, what we found is probably around uh, 90% of the time that uh, if we go back far enough in the patient's history we can come up with a pretty likely a series of events events, uh, over time in places where they have lived or worked where there's been mold exposure. So the next question that we try to address is, well, can we document that they do have these mycotoxins in the body and these could be uh, contributing toward their symptoms? So we have relied largely upon um, the mycotoxin assay through uh, real-time laboratories um, down in Texas, and uh we've actually published um uh this work as you're aware, and that can be found online and what we found, and I believe you found the same thing is is in these people who have had exposure and have this these uh plethora of symptoms that the vast, vast majority, over 90% of them, will test positive on the uh, urine mycotoxin assay. It's not 100%, and sometimes we'll even have some someone that will come back negative the first time around, and if we te- test them uh, again later on, they'll they'll then uh, turn out positive. And I know you and myself have even done some uh, provocative testing, like doing it post sauna or that sort of thing, to bring out the toxins. But the majority will then... Um, come out positive on, the vast majority will come up positive on the toxin assay, which then leads us into a treatment, which I know we're going to talk about.
2: Right. So, so for, for me, I, when I get a negative test that I'm pretty convinced the patient has mold toxicity, just as you're saying, I may repeat the test with provocation, and, and I use two kinds. One is a sauna. And the other is glutathione. And if I'm doing glutathione, I may use 500 milligrams orally twice a day for a week and then collect the urine on the seventh day. I will add that if patients are doing that, I warn them that sometimes the glutathione so thoroughly pulls toxin into the system that they can get really sick during that. Uh, period when they're taking it. So if that's happening, I ask them, please stop taking it immediately if you're getting worse and then submit the urine right then. And I've, I've gotten many positives then on patients who were otherwise negative. Um, and in addition, I also use a nasal wash also available through real-time where sometimes if we simply have them wash out their sinuses with a little bit of saline and then collect that material and send it in, we'll get a positive test. So we're going to come back to this in just just a minute, but first let me mention the first of our very wonderful sponsors, and that would be Research Nutritionals. Um, Research Nutritionals has been around for many, many years, and it's very well known for its specialty immune energy and detox formulations that help us with some of these very difficult, complicated patients. They're well known for conducting clinical research on their formulations and that research also helps us to move forward here. So having said that, there are a couple of newer products that they have that I'd like to mention on today's broadcast. Um, the first is to quiet Cytokines, and as we'll talk about, cytokines are the primary reason that mold toxicity has so many varied symptoms and so much um, occurs with it, because mold toxin stimulates the body, stimulates the immune system to make cytokines in inflammatory quantities that it can't turn off. So they have a new product called Cytokel, C Y T O Q U E L, which contains a wide variety of natural materials to quiet the outpouring of these cytokines, and it can be very, very helpful for some of our patients here. So um, to learn more, I very much encourage uh, all of our listeners to go to Nutritionals at researchednutritionals.com, or you can call them at 800-755-3402 for additional information. And with that, let's go to a break.
4: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Dr. Nathan invites you to go to his website, neilnathanmd.com, for additional presentations and blogs. You can buy his new book, Healing is Possible, New Hope for Chronic Fatigue, Fibromyalgia, Persistent Pain, and Other Chronic Illnesses on Amazon, Kindle, and through all booksellers. Information about personal medical phone consultations or office visits is also available through the website, neilnathanmd.com, as well as at gordonmedical.com.
1: We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show & Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health &
4: Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: You are listening to The Cutting Edge of Health & Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. If you have a question or comment for the show today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Nathan at earthlink.net. Now, back to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness Today.
2: Welcome back to our show, The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness Today. I'm your host, Dr. Neil Nathan. Um, Again, if you have questions during the broadcast, you can call us at 866-472-5792. If you've just joined us, We've been discussing mold toxicity and some of the most cutting-edge newest information we can provide you, and I'm delighted to be, be talking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Joe Brewer. Um, so, uh, uh, Joe, when we, when we took our break, we just began talking about the real-time um, assay for mycotoxins, and perhaps we can begin talking about how we use that assay to not only make the diagnosis, but then to inform us about how to proceed in a logical way with treating that specifically.
3: Right. So the um, the real-time assay um, currently, and I'll add in one new, uh, interesting new uh, availability here in a moment. uh, typically for the last several years has had three mycotoxins on the assay, aflatoxin, ocratoxin, spelled O-C-H-R-A, and uh, trichothecenes. These mycotoxins, I think it's important for our audience to understand, are, are the actual what we call secondary metabolites or secondary products that are produced by mold. So we're not, some of my patients get confused with this, we're not measuring the mold itself. We're measuring the toxins, if you will, that are put off by the mold or produced by the mold. And then these toxins enter into the uh, system and into the bloodstream, go into the cells. We think disrupt a lot of systems in the body, including production of cytokines, like you mentioned earlier. And uh, and then the body in its attempt to try to eliminate these, one of the places that it eliminates them is in the urine, which then gives us the positive test. So when we get the mycotoxins back, we look at which ones are positive, and some patients have only one positive, some have two, and some have all three. And then uh, we can somewhat design what, what we want to treat them with. Uh, one of the treatment options are the uh, binders, which are, are inert substances like activated charcoal, bentonite clay, cholestyramine, etc., that will bind the toxins in the uh, gut when they've been excreted in through the bile and allow them to exit the system through a bowel movement. Uh, And some of the binders seem to be more toxin-specific for certain toxins, so sometimes we'll design our binder protocol for whichever toxin is present. Um, A newer development is, uh, and then uh, we'll get back to later talking about the, uh, the nasal antifungals that we use for any of the toxins. The newest development is a toxin called gliotoxin, G-L-I-O, that has just become available by real-time laboratories within the last uh, uh, probably six to eight weeks and now is available uh, as part of their assay. And uh, we are quite excited about this as another uh, uh, toxic byproduct that we can measure, and this one may be quite important. And I, I know, Neil, you might want to make some comments on that.
2: Right. Well, the gliotoxin is made by Aspergillus, which is one of the common toxins that people get exposed to that can make them sick. But in addition to that, uh, many people believe that gliotoxin is also made by Candida, so that this may be a more specific way of helping us to know which of our Candida patients are really being affected by it and give us a more specific way of monitoring that and how we work with it. Having said that, we just got, actually as of yesterday, our first few gliotoxin assays back, and I specifically was looking at some of my patients that we had mentioned before that I was certain had mold toxicity, but could not get a positive test from them, and on a few of those patients, I had a particular woman who has really been sick for many years, and we have tested her over and over for Lyme disease and mold toxicity and anything I can think of. She has the full constellation of symptoms here, and and yet we haven't had any positive testing, and she's one of those folks uh, who really needs to know that she has this before she's willing to embark on a complicated treatment program, I mean, for which I can't blame her, and her um, gliotoxin test was 3.54 with the upper limit of normal of that of 0.3, meaning she had uh, 10 times above the limit of the test of gliotoxin, so I think I can take this information back to her now and go, okay, now we can really confirm your diagnosis and really start treating I think it's in patients like this that this test will be uh, particularly helpful as we uh, as we move this thing forward
3: and I might mention Neil that w- one of the things with the gliotoxin, we're, we're excited because we have a new um, uh, 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 toxin that we think is very important uh, probably a, a very toxic toxin that uh, uh, impacts the immune system in a number of deleterious ways and uh, uh, has mitochondrial toxicity, et etc One of the main issues about gliotoxin is we 've always thought it may be there now that we can test for it. Uh, the, there, it may guide us in some different directions on, on treatment. Uh, we don't know which binders may work best for gliotoxin as one point. We do think that the antifungals that we use uh, nasally and so forth have a pretty broad activity for gliotoxin. But in some patients, it will raise the question of whether candida may be an issue along with the mold's.
2: Well, and clinically, we've seen over the years that we do have quite a few patients that we're treating from old that we have had additional benefit when we've added a treatment more specific for Candida. Um, so, I mean, that may this may well really augment our ability to do it. And um, as we get these assays back, hopefully, we'll be able to generate quite a bit more information for all of our listeners fairly quickly. And what I'm particularly looking at would be, um, we suspect, just because our patients have done well clinically, that the treatment that we're using um, includes treatment for the for the species that make uh, gliotoxin, and if we can get a series of these assays on some of our patients um, that we've already treated, we can begin to define that and really help, um, you know, the
3: whole medical world to know what we're doing here, so... Yes, I agree. It's exciting times.
2: More to learn. Always more. Um, it, it, for me particularly, I think it will help. You know, I'll give you another example. I have another patient who had done very well. In fact, I have two who had done very well, at least on paper, that their mold toxin testing had gone from quite positive to quite negative, and yet they were not as well as I would have, I would have anticipated them, being, and both of them with the gliotoxin are have elevated levels. So again, that may be a tip-off as to helping us to understand why someone clinically is not as good as we hoped, because we're looking at something we've not been able to look at before.
3: The other thing I think is important with maybe all of these mycotoxins, but particularly gliotoxin, is since it's so immune suppressive, then we may get into the uh, thing that we talk about a. Uh, um, uh, a lot in these patients is the vicious cycle, so the the gliotoxin suppresses the immune system, which allows the mold and or candida or both to grow more, and then it becomes a vicious cycle, so trying to break that cycle is is an important thing of what we try to do
2: yeah, absolutely. You had mentioned previously that many of our patients also have. Lyme disease or other infectious illnesses, chronic mycoplasma, chlamydia pneumonia, um, viral infections, and it, it's a package deal. When, when these, these cytokines are being produced and they compromise the immune system, um, it's um, additive, but almost in an exponential way. So, again, getting this out of their system, I'm going to um, echo what you're saying, uh, very important.
3: Yes. I totally agree.
2: Okay. So with this information, and we've got some new information cooking here, um, with that available, um, we, we, we started talking about the binders. And let me add to that that in, in um, my experience, and I'm, I know that Joe has had a similar experience, you have to be way more careful with the binders than you would think. You know, on the bottle of chlorella, it will say, take 15 of these tablets twice a day. I don't have anybody who can do that. So you have to go very carefully on introducing binders, very slow, very gentle, because you can actually make make our patients worse by literally pulling more of this toxin into their body than they can process.
3: Um, Right, I agree.
2: Yeah, so we're, we're both seeing that. So I, I want to emphasize it's not a simple matter of just tanking up on these, on these materials. That is, that is rife with difficulty. Please, please work with somebody who has some experience doing this because these materials are benign in concept. I mean, come on, really. Uh, chlorella, activated charcoal, bentonite clay, commonly used in large doses by many people for other things. In, in, our, in our patient population, um, you have to go very slowly and carefully. I, I can't count the number of patients who have been um, worsened or made ill by not realizing um, how these materials will work. So I just really wanted to Emphasize that point. This is kind of like uh, don't 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 uh, try this at home, folks. Without without the other thing that
3: comes up with the binders quite frequently is with almost all of the patients is the binders don't just bind mycotoxins. They can bind uh, prescription medications, any kind of a medication, whether it be a blood pressure pill or a heart pill or. An antibiotic or whatever and then they can bind supplements, uh, including vitamins and minerals and so forth. So the, so the patient also has to be very careful and instructed how they take the binders so that they separate them out from their, their medications and supplements. Otherwise that, that will create a problem as well.
2: Now, thank you for pointing that out. Um, just as I comment on that, if we're using things like chlorella, charcoal, or clay, typically I recommend that those be taken away from food or supplements or medication. That means, if possible, two hours um, after or before a meal. So we're talking about something like uh, perhaps 3 o'clock in the afternoon or maybe at bedtime before you go to bed, really being careful, as, as Dr., Brewer saying to not um, get into trouble with that.
3: I've actually had a, a couple of patients that have had to take them in the middle of the night. They set an alarm and it's the only way they can take them. Uh, we obviously don't like to have to do that because it disrupts their sleep, but they think the binders are helping and the only way they can find, you know, between their other medications a time that's two hours apart is to set an alarm and take it during the night.
2: Yeah, and I've had patients do it as well and for the same reason. I really want them to get their sleep uh, very often, and we didn't mention it before, the irritability of the nervous system that these toxins cause uh, does make it difficult for most of our patients to sleep well. So that's kind of another added piece to that. So let me just mention our, our other uh, sponsor for just a moment. And That would be Beyond Balance. Um, Particularly in the context of today's program, Beyond Balance makes a very nice product called Mycoregan, M-Y-C-O-R-E-G-E-N. It's a formula that contains a, a synergistic blend of herbs that specifically helps the body to address mold and fungal issues. It can be used as a tincture. Um, taking a, a one or two drops in our very sensitive patients, working up to three to five drops twice a day. Um, but in addition, and we're just beginning to use it this way, it can also be used as a nasal spray so that as we get into talking about the nasal sprays, uh, just be aware of Michael Reagan, wonderful new addition from Beyond Balance. I will encourage, again, our listeners to go to, to their website, which is www. Beyond Balance Inc.com, I-N-C, or you can call them at 800 332 7713 to learn more. And with that, we'll go to a break.
4: Opinions, Options, Answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Dr. Nathan invites you to go to his website, neilnathanmd.com, for additional presentations and blogs. You can buy his new book, Healing is Possible, New Hope for Chronic Fatigue, Fibromyalgia, Persistent Pain, and Other Chronic Illnesses on Amazon, Kindle, and through all booksellers. Information about personal medical phone consultations or office visits is also available through the website, neilnathanmd.com, as well as at gordonmedical.com step-by-step you
0: made it through the journey of pregnancy now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey breastfeeding as a new parent you receive a lot of advice much of it conflicting some of it outdated tune into born to be breastfed with host marie Biancuzo to bust through the myths about feeding your baby Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice
4: America Health & Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: Listening to the cutting edge of health and wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. If you have a question or comment for the show today, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Nathan at earthlink.net. Now, back to the cutting edge of health and wellness today.
2: Welcome back to the cutting edge of health and wellness today. I'm your host, Dr. Neil Nathan, and I am delighted to be with my friend and colleague, Dr. Joe Brewer, uh, bringing you up to date on the treatment of mold toxicity. And I'm told, uh, Joe, that we have a caller on hold from Houston. Uh, do you want to put her through, Matt? Hello. Um, hello, Carolyn. What's your question? Hi: Hi, and this is a question for Dr. Brewer. Um, I'm an HLA dreaded genotype, as Richie Shoemaker calls it, a 4353, and um, been struggling with mold for a while. So we're eventually going to be moving pretty soon, and we are have that big debate of what do we take, what do we leave behind, and it's not like, um, it's like a big deal because we have major books, both my husband and I, with our careers, and it's a bit, lot of money to consider to replace that kind of thing, so... We just wanted to know what Doctor Brewer's experience was with his patients of getting better when they did, or versus when they didn't take their possessions to their new location. Well, thank you, Carolyn. That's a good question. Um, I think we'll both take a shot at it. Joe, why don't you go first?
3: Right, that's a great question, and and uh, I think we should both take a shot at it. It's, <laughs> unfortunately, it's quite controversial, it, and I would say that you know we you kind of have two opposite sides of the of the argument. One is that that if you just, you know, kind of wipe things down everything will be fine. And the other one is, oh, everything is mold contaminated and you need to throw out everything. Uh the as with most things in life, probably the true answer is somewhere in the middle. Um, generally I kind of divide things into um items that, that have hard surfaces, uh you know, utensils, plates, dining materials, wood furniture, uh, 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 things that have very hard surfaces that can be wiped down. I think all of those are probably fine once they're wiped down with uh, uh, some sort of a cleaning material that would have uh, that would be able to kill mold. Which there are many, many of them out there. The um, the next you get into are, are um, uh, materials that are porous, such as cloth and furniture. Uh, clothing, I actually think, might be okay as long as it's it's thoroughly washed or dry cleaned. Uh, Dr. Hooper's actually done a little bit of work at real time where they have uh, eluted mycotoxins out of contaminated clothing and then washed it with a detergent and then uh, done the same experiment again and the mycotoxins are gone. So we actually have some evidence that that, that washing clothing, uh, or we assume dry cleaning, it may be effective. Then we get into to cloth furniture, and that becomes a lot trickier. Uh, I know some of the mold remediators will HEPAVAC extensively, try to wipe down as much as they can, but there is, there is a bit of a concern with cloth furniture, and that would also include, say, mattresses and box springs and so forth. The, the hardest one I find of all are books, books and papers, and we have people who... Were professionals, lawyers, and so forth, who had many books, and it's hard to know what to do. Uh, the, you know, the books, many of them, were in libraries closed, so that 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 it would find it. I find it hard to believe that the mycotoxins would actually burrow into the a closed book in a library. But but we still recommend at least wiping down the surfaces and so forth. I think the hardest ones we see are people who had large boxes of. Uh, papers or whatever in a basement, and then the mold was actually growing on the papers in the boxes, and unfortunately, I'm afraid those are going to be almost impossible to to clean and get rid of the mold, so it kind of depends on what the material is, but I think a lot of things can be salvaged and taken with the patient, probably depending on how porous they are.
2: The, you know, the trick, and i, I agree with everything you've said, Joe. The trick is I, I think it varies from material to material and how infested it is, and it's almost impossible to know. So I've had patients who have um, kept furniture and papers and moved with them and gotten reinfected from them, and I have patients who have done the same thing and have not. So it, it to me, it's it's not as clean or as scientific as being able to tell everyone, you must destroy everything you've ever owned and start fresh. I think that that's excessive and unnecessary, but to tell a specific patient about what they can take is an extremely difficult decision, and I don't have any scientific way of knowing how to how to advise that patient.
3: Yeah, I tell them... Uh... We try best just to use some common sense about you know was the material infested and you know was there was there mold growing on it and so forth uh, you know let's say someone had had mold in their uh, master uh, bedroom closet and there was mold all up and uh, down the walls and so forth if they had clothes in there those clothes are probably pretty heavily contaminated on the other hand if the mold was in the basement and the the clothes in the closet were you know, they could have been the mold could have been carried there through the air ducts, but still, the clothes were pretty far removed from that. So, I think one of the hardest ones is clothing, and you know, because many people have thousands of dollars worth of clothing, and they hate to just throw all that out. So, I do think uh, that at least some of the work that Dr. Hooper's done on on clothing is is somewhat encouraging. So, but it it has to be individualized on a case by case basis.
2: Yeah, <clears throat> it is. The, the second comment I would like to make on our caller's information is. Um, I think many people put too much emphasis on the HLA-DR testing that she referred to. Uh, the HLA-DR testing um, will point out some patients who have a genetic predisposition for not handling mold toxin or lime toxin or other materials quite as well as others. But uh, unfortunately, and I I know that Dr. Shoemaker is aware of that, I I am very sorry that he added the word dreaded to certain uh, phenotypes. So when he talks about the dreaded 4353 type, and I have not seen those, those phenotypes do any worse in treatment than almost anybody else. So I'm not finding that information as negative, as other people have uh, made it to be. And I, I don't think we have to be worried that, um, gosh, if we have that, there's almost no chance that we can get well. That's not been my experience. If we treat this properly, we measure the mycotoxins, if we use the right materials, and if we're patient and careful and slow, then the vast majority of our patients um, get better. And, uh, and Joe, you've published several papers on that uh, which um, have done, have documented that
3: right the um uh, our two most recent paper or papers one published in april of this year uh, i'm sorry 2015 i guess we're in 2016 and uh and then um <clears throat> one just recently published the, the most recent one the nystatin paper is is uh i don't believe it's online yet but it should be soon um uh, uh basically uh with emphasis on treating the um Uh, the sinuses with uh, intranasal antifungal medication to try to eradicate the mold out of the sinuses. And I know you've used that quite extensively, as have I, and we've had uh, very good results with that.
2: We have. And that will bring us to another question that I've got here. This one was emailed in by a patient, Diana, from the East Coast. And what she is saying, I probably could read some of it, I was wondering if you, Dr. Brewer, and your colleagues have thoughts on treating patients who have tested very positively for mycotoxins using the real-time assay, um, but were unable to tolerate the nasal spray treatments um, because of the way that their body responded to those treatments. And, And she writes, as an example, the patient, I don't know if she's referring to herself as not, was using nasal nystatin but even while continuing, cholestyramine-inactivated charcoal was barely able to tolerate the fatigue and herxing symptoms, even doing only a half dose every three or four days. So um, in light of that, let's let's share our experience working with some of these treatments so that we can give maybe our listening audience a chance to get a better feel for that.
3: Well, to kind of launch into that the 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 first treatment nasally that we tried uh, the concept is to that the uh for the listening audience uh, those who've not heard it before is we think that the mold spores get into the sinuses and the mold actually takes up residence in the sinuses and can produce the toxins internally. So then the patient is actually being exposed right out of their own body uh and we have a lot of evidence we think we've collected that uh that the sinuses may be a reservoir for the mold so the first treatment with, that we initiated back about uh, i guess 3 years ago was was intranasal amphotericin which is an antifungal agent that can be delivered up into the nose and sinus cavities through a mister or inhaler type device and uh and we've actually had good luck with that in terms of um uh, patients improving, unfortunately, the amphotericin itself is, is, uh, uh, chemically kind of irritating to the tissues. And some people would say, uh, the word kind of irritating may be too kind of a word. Uh, so some patients will get nosebleeds and extreme burning and, and irritation. Some get nothing at all. So, uh, in patients who do well on amphotericin, we keep them on it and, and they've continued to do well and we've had people get well on that regimen. The, uh, so the newer development was hunting for something that was less irritating to the nose and sinuses. We turned to intranasal nystatin, and we've been using that for about a year and a half now. the uh, The intranasal nystatin is tolerated very well on the on the nasal tissues. Uh, we we see almost no burning irritation. We very rarely get a, a nosebleed uh, or that sort of thing. And so, the nystatin has been almost wonderful in terms of how well it's tolerated nasally however with any of the meds uh, either Nystatin and and let me say with Nystatin we see about the same response rate as we see with Amphotericin Uh, we see over 80% of people will improve on that regimen if they can stick with it what I was beginning to say is, however, a lot of these people will get die-off or these Herxheimer-type reactions in which when the mold is killed or dies in the sinuses, it will actually release toxins as it's being killed, and then that sort of ex- that releases more toxins into the system and the patient feels worse. And We've seen that with both amphotericin and nystatin uh what this lady has done is what we've tried is to cut the dose back significantly and uh, uh, and see if a much lower dose, using either a lower dose or less frequently, which she has done both, uh, they'll be able to tolerate that. And that's worked most of the time. I won't say it's 100%, but it's worked most of the time. Sometimes we'll work on other detox uh Avenues such as sauna and trying to work with the binders and so forth to see if we can get them through that. And I know, Neil, you've had experience with that too, so I might turn it back to you.
2: Great. Um, You've raised several things that I want to talk about, and I I will, but um, first, we're going to go to another break and we'll come right back and continue this discussion.
4: Dr. Nathan invites you to go to his website, neilnathanmd.com, for additional presentations and blogs. You can buy his new book, Healing is Possible, New Hope for Chronic Fatigue, Fibromyalgia, Persistent Pain, and Other Chronic Illnesses on Amazon, Kindle, and through all booksellers. Information about personal medical phone consultations or office visits is also available through the website, neilnathanmd.com, as well as at gordonmedical.com.
0: The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness.
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: You are listening to the Cutting Edge of Health & Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan, if you have a question or comment for the show today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Nathan at earthlink.net. Now, back to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness Today.
2: Welcome back to our show, The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness Today. I'm your host, Dr. Neil Nathan, and I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Joe Brewer, as we continue to update you on mold toxicity. And we were um, uh, just talking about a particular um, email that we got from a from a patient who was having a lot of difficulty with her nystatin nasal spray. And as I look over the email, Joe, um, one of the things that I noticed that may be getting her into trouble is that um, she was thinking that by continuing or maybe even increasing the cholestyramine in the activated charcoal to twice a day, that this was going to take care of the excessive amount of toxin that was produced. And I think she might be forgetting that if you take too much binder, that can make you worse. So I'm not sure that the worsening that she is attributing to the nystatin is entirely caused by that particular component.
3: Yes, I agree. uh, You had already mentioned earlier about the uh, binders and the fact that people often have to initiate those very slowly and take them up slowly and be cautious of getting worse. So uh, one other uh, issue is when the person is is having difficulty tolerating things like the nasal nystatin, they may need to look at the other aspects of their treatment and those may need to be modified. So one thing she could consider is, is either reducing the binders or going off one or both of them, and seeing if that makes a difference in the uh, tolerance to the nystatin?
2: Yeah, wonderful suggestion. That would be mine as well. I mean, one of the things that, that Dr. Brew and I had talked about, uh, some of our um, combining some of our thoughts earlier this week, and and um, you noticed that in the study that you did using nystatin spray, you had a quite a bit higher incidence of die-off than. Um, than I have noticed, and yours was was roughly what twenty five percent,
3: right? In the in the paper that that's already been accepted for publication, uh, the uh, the die off reaction even in some it was relatively mild, but the die off reaction was about twenty five percent or about one out of four. Uh, now only about. Um, uh, you know, about a third of those patients had to actually, the die-off was bad enough, they discontinued therapy. Uh, now some of those, of course, we backed the dose down and then restarted at a lower dose. So, uh, it, it seemed to be a bit higher than we had, uh, expected. Although again, uh, probably about eight to ten percent, uh, uh, actually discontinued therapy and then, may have restarted later on. Uh, and I know, I, th- I believe you had mentioned your your rate of die-off has actually been lower than that.
2: Yeah, quite a bit lower, maybe 2 to 5%, not as high. Um, I may be a bit more cautious than you are um, generally with, with my patients, so I don't really know that. You know, I, I, we didn't talk about it before, but, you know, when we treat Candida with, with medications like, Nystat, like um, Diflucan, um, it's not rare to get a die-off from that as well, where patients who really have a lot of of candida on board um, will have a severe reaction when they take Diflucan. Even a single dose can sometimes precipitate that. Um, I mean, I've always noticed over the years that once they've had that bad die-off, Often the next time they take it, it's not as bad, and the next time they take that, it's not as bad. Um, have you noticed any kind of a similar phenomena with with using the nystatin?
3: Uh, right, we we have seen that too. Where oftentimes it's it's worse at the beginning. Uh, we've had an occasional patient where it's kind of bad all the way through, but those are quite rare. Usually, it it does t- tend to turn down the longer they're on it, and then they modify it. The uh, I may just throw in very briefly, in there, the references in our published papers, the, uh, there's a fascinating uh, test tube study where uh, aspergillus, which is one of the, the fungi that gives off, gives off mycotoxins and actually produces gliotoxin, and in this particular study it was gliotoxin they were studying, when they exposed um, the aspergillus in a test tube to uh, an antifungal agent, which was amphotericin, which is one of the nasal sprays we use. Uh, there was a dramatic increase in the amount of de- gliotoxin that's released. So we actually have data, good test tube data, that that, that this is real. That the uh, uh, when the when the fungus is being killed, at least in the in that one particular case, gliotoxin there is an excess release of the toxin. So it's a very real phenomenon. And until the body clears the toxin, uh, we don't want to load more in there. Yeah, one hundred percent agreement. Um... You had shared
2: with me early on that we know that the way that the amphotericin works is that it literally punches holes in the cell wall of the mold. So it would make sense that once it did so, not only would it kill the mold, but it would also release the contents of that cell. So what you're describing makes complete sense.
3: That's exactly right. And actually, uh, uh, nystatin works the same way. It's actually a cousin of amphotericin, which is why we picked it as a potential alternative. Uh, and it turned out, yes, it's much better on the nose, but it, it works the same way. So we can see uh, die-off reactions with it as well.
2: So a a couple of other um, newer things that we're finding that help people, Um, one of the things that we have been working with is, um, is using nasal ozone by insufflation, which is very simple, where you take a deep breath in through your nose, hold it, and then literally inject a little bit of ozone into the sinus areas, right through the nose, and then hold that for 20 or 30 seconds, and then exhale through the nose again. And we've been finding that um, the patients that do this on a weekly basis seem to be speeding up their treatment significantly, meaning instead of taking a year or more, now we're seeing people getting much better in eight or nine months. So uh, that's been one of our observations, Joe, that that um, I, I think is very, very um, helpful as we try to expand our ability to help these sensitive patients get over this this illness.
3: Yes, I think that's intriguing, and I look forward to um, your ongoing experience with that.
2: Yeah. Uh, so we have a few minutes left. Um, what What else would you like to share with our listening audience about uh, just some some, just some other basics about? Well, the- I may
3: break up one new thing. We don't certainly don't have time to go in much detail today. But one thing that we've been working with is is uh, far infrared sauna. It's a rel- and I know you've probably had. Probably even more experienced than I have, but it is a kind of a new modality that a number of my patients have been trying um, uh, doing saunas to basically detox and move the uh, toxins out um, of the body. interestingly, with sauna, the toxins will go out through sweat, but it also dramatically increases the urine levels, as you pointed out earlier, sometimes you 'll use that as a provocation test to get a positive uh, urine assay so we can see the urine levels dramatically go up uh, post-sauna. Within two to four hours post-sauna, the urine levels will just skyrocket. So we have evidence, actually, uh, uh, that, that sauna will, will move the toxins out of the body. Now, these would be toxins that are already embedded in the tissues and the cells. So this this is another area that's kind of exciting that, uh, that, that we're pursuing more and more all the time.
2: Uh, uh, excellent. And, yes, we do use it quite a bit as a part of our program uh, again, my caveat to all listeners is be careful with a sauna. Um, uh, a long time spent in a sauna can overload the body with toxins, so go slow. Start with just five or ten minutes and work your way up to a level that your body likes. So, um, uh, Joe, thank you so much for joining us again for what I hope is a very, very helpful, valuable um, um learning experience for all of our listeners out there. And, and if we're introducing you to the concept of mold toxicity, then I encourage you to go online, Google uh, Joe Brewer, MD, comma, mold toxicity, and you can see Joe's articles published there. So thanks again, Joe. Thank you to all your listening audience. I'd like you to know that we had... Um, 230,000 downloads of our show last year. The numbers are just out. So we're very, very excited about how how, uh, many listeners we have. We have listeners from 70-plus countries. So uh, I'm very pleased that you're all listening, and hopefully you'll all get well. Take care. Thanks, Dale.
1: Thank you again for joining us for The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness Today. Please join Dr. Neil Nathan again next Friday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. And this week, apply what you've learned today to enjoy better health.